Well, hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue podcast, which is sponsored by Howard Solicitors, who have offices throughout Greater Manchester and Cheshire. They specialise in areas of law that affect the individual. So it's likely if you need any help or guidance, then someone that they have in their staff will give you some help. If you give them a call, and obviously if you're outside of Greater Manchester, you're probably going to prefer to go to the website. But the number in Greater Manchester is 01618729999. You can email law at howardsolicitors.com or visit the website howardsolicitors.com. And if you say that you found out about them on this podcast, I'm sure they'll be even more helpful than they would normally be. Now, my name's Ian Cheeseman. I'm a long-term City fan and journalist, uh, and this is a weekly Manchester City podcast, which is open to all, of course. You don't have to be a City fan to listen, where we discuss everything that is going on with our fabulous club at the moment. So we'll be talking about the, the game at Bournemouth, because this is a week, week since the last one, the game at Bournemouth and the midweek trip to uh, Red Bull Leipzig in the Champions League. And looking ahead, to the FA Cup type Bristol City and maybe the visit of Newcastle in the Premier League next weekend. Now, our three guests, as always, we've got um, two of our regular members, Andy and Steve, but we have as our special guest this week, um, the one and only king of all Geordies, Mr. Dennis Stewart. So, Dennis, thanks very much for joining us. Um, I know you've, you've only got limited time with us, but we appreciate how precious that time is, so we will make as much of use of it as we can. How are you feeling as a former City director, a former City player, um, and these days, I guess, a City fan? How are you feeling about the Blues at the moment and where, where we are? Yeah, well, I'm very comfortable. You know, I think at the minute, just uh, come uh, February, end of February, being three points behind, I think the, obviously the big game is going to be the, the uh, Arsenal game at home in a few weeks' time. That's going to be the critical one, but we have to sustain the challenge. That's the main thing. Can we sustain the challenge? I mean, let ourselves down a bit at uh, Forest. Um, really in the league when you've had about 20 attempts on goal and scored one. You know, that was just the uh, the one disappointment because the, you look at Forest, you look at um, Leipzig away, which we first game, and then you look at Bournemouth, you think we've got three decent results and that season really looks promising. Obviously, City's expectation level now is so high that what possibly back when you were playing, Dennis, a draw away from home, is a good result. The expectation level now is that City have to win every game, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, under the circumstances, you know, don't forget Leipzig beat Bayern a few weeks ago. You know, so they weren't they weren't a bad side. And I thought the first half we dominated it uh, unbelievable. I think we just need that, which has been a bit of a down for us in the last few weeks, where I just got that second goal, just to close the game down. Once we got the second goal yesterday at Bournemouth, I knew that was it. We could we could relax. And then when Phil got the third one before half time, I thought, wow. You know, that really is a, uh, a statement outside the uh, to the rest of the league. Is there a level, well, there is statistically a level of inconsistency that's slightly higher than it was last year? I mean, City didn't slip in games like the Brentford game or the Everton game or the Nottingham Forest game last season. They, they tended to win those, what you might call, more routine matches more regularly, didn't they? Yeah, I agree. And, and that's been the issue. We just haven't got that second second goal Uh early enough. Um, you know, we've always seen we do well early on, but to get the second goal, because the opposition then really have to uh, to come out because what's been happening, we get the ball, we drop deep, our tempo's a bit slow on the build-up and sometimes I just get a bit frustrated when our back four keep passing the ball backwards and forwards to each other and the opposition just drop deep and uh, when we do get the ball forward, you know, it's um, the, the space is limited and that's why David Silva and Sergio Aguero were brilliant because you get the ball to David Silva 30 yards from goal and you can see him looking for the little runs off Sergio in the little gaps between the defenders, and David Silva would find him. And that's the thing we haven't got there. We just haven't got the, the ball forward quick enough on, on enough occasions. Uh, City dominate possession general, generally in games, not every time, but most of the time that's the way Pep's team wants to play. My said, son said to me today as we were watching the United-Newcastle League Cup final, he said, it isn't about possession, um, you know, you come away from a game if you've had 75% possession thinking you've controlled it. And he said, actually, a counter-attacking team can control the game without having possession. Would you agree with him in what he's saying? And if that's the case, is that is that mean that we should look at City's game slightly differently? I think I think he probably, and Andy, Andy's been the guest in the box, you know, uh, yeah, he had. So we've had this conversation before. It's, it's when you look at possession stats, 
I would like to have that broken down into attacking possession and defensive mm-hmm. possession. If you, if you have possession 30 yards from your goal, that's not good possession. If you have a possession 30 yards from the opposition's goal, well, that's a different matter because they, you've got the defence, the opposition defence thinking what's going to happen now. We better look after ourselves here. And uh, the defence of them, they start looking around and we get people running in behind them, the spaces behind them, in between the, the, the defenders. That's, we can't do 10, 15-yard runs from our own half to get to get to penetrate the opposition defence. You need to do that 30 yards from goal in their half. You mentioned Andy there. He's obviously one of our other guests tonight. Um, you got a view on that, Andy? I know you watch the game very intensely. Yeah, I think uh, the midweek game, watching it from from inside the stadium, uh, I was very frustrated with the lateral play in, uh, I would call it, defensive possession. Now we've termed the phrase. Um, yesterday was entirely different. And I think, again, the opposition's different. Let's not you know, detract from the fact that Leipzig are in the last 16 of the Champions League and Bournemouth are fighting for their lives. But the idea that Pep can actually see that and we were able to play Rico Lewis a little bit uh, in a more attacking role, free Dilke yesterday, I think it was, I mean, game over because we were able to go forward, we were passing forward and it was just a breath of fresh air. And I think that's the that's the sort of secret really. How can we exploit that without having the likes of silver as you mentioned how can we create that opportunity for you know teams to be broken down by us still having a forward momentum instead of this two, two if you like two wingers playing off the wrong foot always coming inside all the time rarely going behind a defender very predictable and consequently we end up with this kind of seesaw football across the across the park against teams who whether it's Brentford or Leipzig or Wolves or whoever who set up against us to simply simply block us from playing forward. Yeah, you were a right-footed player, Dennis, but you were a very two-footed winger, I thought. <coughs> What's your view on the in- inverted wingers and how they suit Erling Haaland? Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've read Pep, both of Pep's books, Pep Evolution, Pep Revolution, you know, about when he came and went past at the Bayern and Bayern City. Uh, and he did do this inverted fullbacks, and Philip Lamb apparently was an artist at it. Philip Lamb at Bayern Munich. Um, but what, what happens when the, 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 the fullbacks are inverted, that only gives you more possession in that area. You know, I would like, I mean, it's a perfect example, um, Pablo Zabaleta. He was brilliant at breaking behind the, the wide mm. man and overlapping because the space mm. is behind, behind the opposition. If you get, I mean, the whole idea of football is to get two one to one all over the pitch as much as possible. So therefore you have one person on the ball and another supporting man. And the overlap to me, is the, one of the, the, the best forms of attack. You know, when you, you, because you've got a defender coming towards a man with the ball, and all of a sudden, somebody runs in behind and he doesn't know where to stick or twist. Should I stay with the man on the ball? Should I go with the runner? And that just creates a sense of uncertainty. And as Andy mentioned about um, uh, Rihad Maris, he does come in a lot, but because he's got nobody else, like when Kyle Walker was playing right back, you'd see Kyle steam up on the outside or even on the inside, like an underlap or an overlap, and dive into that space in behind the defender who's coming towards Rihad Maris. And that's what you're looking for. But you have to do that when the ball's forward quickly, you can't, when the ball's 30 yards from their goal. You can't do that when it's 60 yards from their goal. Consequently, you've got to just buy your time in the, uh, and make sure you can do it. The tempo forward is important. How does that work on the left then? Because at the moment, Ake, I know it's not always Ake, but Ake has predominantly been getting the left side. He doesn't bomb forward like Kyle Walker does. And Grealish is also an inverted winger, if you, if you want to call him that. Some people would say he's more natural as a, as a central midfielder. But that's where Pep's playing him. He's playing him right out on the touchline. Does it work as, as effectively on the left? Yeah, it does, because if you, if you watch sometimes, actually, Nathan has gone on the overlap. He has gone. And the problem is Jack has ignored him. And that's I mean, my, my, my first coach, Alan Brown, no one heard it. And we used to do this on, on repetition, repetition all the time. And when you had the ball in the forward position and you were confronted by a defender and your teammate made it an overlap or an underlap to go for, to, to support you in behind the, the defence and you didn't give him it, he'd pull you, pull you off the train after the game and say, during that player, your teammate's made a 30 or 40-yard run and you've ignored him. 
he's to, he's to go berserk because that, that's the whole idea is the kind of support you want off your teammates. And you should, you know, that that's to me, it's a it's an element which, you know, Pablo Zabaleta did brilliantly, especially strange when Jesus Navas played. Jesus Navas played wide and he'd bring it in, it would be diving on the outside or the, or the inside, and it would cause us, uh, cause the opposition problems. I'm sure Stephen will agree with me on this because um, we, we've talked about this a little bit, you know, that there's been a lot of frustration from fans that Haaland isn't, isn't getting the supply that he would want. Um, and, you know, you can see his body language sometimes that he looks quite annoyed by it all. Um, what's your view on, on that, Stephen, about, you know, the, 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 the lack of supply to Haaland? Is that down to the lack of width and wingers and speed and, and all the rest of it? Or is it something else? Is it just something we've got to accept while Haaland adjusts to the way Pep's team plays? Yeah, and I, and I think also the other way around is we adjust to Ireland a little, you know, the way he plays as well, which I, I think we do make a bit of a mountain out of a molehill here with, with Ireland. He's scored 33 goals, I think, is it, this year? So it's not as though all of a sudden he's letting us down or we're letting him down. Everybody's going to go through a little dry patch. But uh, as I said to you yesterday at, at Bournemouth, that we hit him a little bit earlier last night and it was great because he you know he held it up well and found people well but sometimes he makes a run and it's a decoy run and we and then people in the crowd say oh we didn't pass it to him we didn't pass it to him he's not going to get it every time and he he's making a run for the team as as Dennis said there about Carl Walker bombing past Foden or Mares he doesn't get the ball every time and he's running 30 yards but it's working because it's pulling someone out there. So Mares can come inside or whatever. So I think Alan's doing great. Yes, we do have to utilise him a lot more, but sometimes the runs he makes are for the benefit of the team, not just for the benefit <coughs> of himself. Would you have liked to have played in a team with Harlan and Nick Dennis being, being the type of player you were? Yeah, because he's a mobile centre forward and... and... From, from my point of view, all, all my career, I've played with a centre-forward who was fairly mobile. Sunderland, Vic Hallam at Man City, Joe Rowe at the New York Cosmos with um, Giorgio Canali, a very famous Italian centre-forward. And they were sort of very similar, especially Giorgio was uh, 10, 15 yards moving quickly, quickly. Uh, and it was great for me because his movement allowed me to see where I could get into any spaces. And I was quite happy to come in and support the, uh, the, the front man anyway. You know, so I was quite able to see spaces and and knock the ball in and, and, and support uh, on the centre quarter for a knockdown <coughs> or for the edge of the box. So you, did you, that means you prefer to have uh, somebody like that? Absolutely. A target man. You know, in, the more mobile, the better. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I know we're a City podcast, but... Um, United have brought in a player that from Burnley, you know, in Weghorst, that, that not necessarily everybody would have identified as a as a player that would improve United. And yet, whether I don't study United like I study City, but what whether you think it's because of him or in spite of him or whatever, you know, I, I just wonder whether that's something that uh, that their coaches looked at and thought. We need that variety or that different point of attack. When we're so used to watching a City team under Pep, which is magnificent to watch, with no number nine, with, with a false nine, that has actually been its four titles out of five and Champions League final and a Champions League semi-final. So it obviously works, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You've got the, chi you've got the choices then. If you've got a mobile centre forward, that's what you want. You know, and, and, and the, more, the more questions you can ask of the team, depends whether it's a mobile centre forward or a false number nine, the more questions you can ask the opposition defence, the better. But then you've got to have other players in, in the team who can, who can see the spaces and make those comfortable moves in and around that, that sort of end, around by the edge of the box, or to get in around the back. That's where you want to be. Is Julian Alvarez that more my mobile forward, do you think? I'm not sure what Julian Alvarez's best position is at the moment. I mean, he played alongside Messi in the World Cup and, and, and Messi doesn't play <laughs> forward. He's a he's a fairly he comes deep for the ball. And I think Alvarez was just suited to, to that kind of space to run into. I'm not sure at the minute whether he's a better centre forward or a better wide man, or is he a better number 10? I'm not quite sure. He's, he played well yesterday, but he just 
he just kept moving around and uh, and he did his tremendous amount of work defensively chasing back as well. What have you made of uh, uh, Julian Alvarez, Andy, as, as a, an international football fan as well? Well, I, I must admit, I, I like him. I think his work rate is excellent. I think yesterday he created problems for Bournemouth's defence by, by his um, just, just closing down. I think, just touching on the point you've just been discussing about distractions, I think there is an element of truth here. I was critical. I know you you, you were with me on, on Wednesday night when I thought Harland hadn't really put himself about much. And now maybe his job was to simply occupy two defenders. But that's fine, providing you've got something else to then feed that space. And I think maybe that's what Weggor's doing at United. I don't know. But there's logic in it. I understand that. But I think yesterday what we saw was exactly that from City, that basically by having that um, almost like a team that was unable to come at us, really, or create anything until we changed the team around, we were in control and space space was was there for Erling, space for Alvarez, they both got a goal. So I, I think he's a player that provides flexibility and change, uh, but bar, you know, just sticking with a big man up front. And again, not to take anything away from Harlan, my God, if you just said we'd had a player and scored that many goals by February at the start of the season, I wouldn't have believed you. So let's get real and know that teams are starting to look and say, how are we going to stop him? And if, we, if we're not going to stop him, what we've got to work out is how do we get enough players busy on Haaland and exploit that? And I think that comes about with, again, I think what we said before about maybe the, maybe the idea of, of playing more, um, you know, more wing-back type play again. Pep's, Pep's the master of changing things about at the moment. He seems obsessed, obsessed with this sort of inverted fullback idea. But um, yeah, he can change it tomorrow because that's what he's about. Stephen, what's your view on Julian Alvarez? I think he's he's very very good, and as both we both said before his work rate is absolutely fantastic. I call him Tevez because Tevez used to mag the defenders to death, didn't he? <laughs> you know, he never give them a minute. And I think uh, that's you know I I I just call him Tevez because he he's, some of his work rate to come back and win the ball in his own half is fantastic. I think he's 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 a little raw. I would say at this moment in time, he's got talent. He's a little bit raw. Uh, should he be starting every game? If you ask me, I'd say no. But he does make an impact when he's there. Going back to the World Cup with Argentina, I think not a few guys would agree. I think. Do you think he was in there to do Messi's work, so that when Messi got the ball, he's not doing any chasing or anything. He's just doing Messi magic, and Alvarez was doing all the work, putting the defenders under pressure. Maybe. Well, no, he, he makes runs as well. He was making runs, Steve, as well. Where. Um... Little Messi doesn't make the runs forward, you know, and uh, Julian Alvarez was making those runs, uh, and that, therefore the opposition are not sure should we stand here and mark Messi, or should we look for Alvarez coming through behind us? So, and that's the whole idea of the game is to make defenders, as I said earlier, to make defenders feel uncertain. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say about yesterday, what formation do you think we played? Because it wasn't a four-four-two. Do you think it was more four-four-one-one or four-five-one? With Alvarez being free to roam, yeah, it was more a four-three-one, four-three-one-three, wasn't it? Yeah, all three. Then Alvarez on his own, just three. Then three front men, because you had Akanji, Nathan Aki, and Diaz as a back three, and then you had sort of three again in front of that, and then you had Alvarez. Alvarez and Fenn, but allowed Gundogan to make forward runs as well because he made a couple of forward runs. Even the, the commentator made made that uh, observation when he was uh, in the game. So it, it just allowed one or two others to do different things. But certainly, I'd like to think see us get forward. Just that I love the possession. I love keeping possession. But occasionally, I just like an earlier ball forward. And what it says in Pep's book, when I read his book, it was on about you know, breaking the lines. You know, when you get the ball and you see space in front of you, carry it forward, break the lines, go to the next line. And therefore, you, you pull people out of their positions and then you can pass to somebody else who obviously then becomes free. And that just, I'd like to see a little bit more than that. Where do you stand on the title race, Dennis? I mean, um, you know, are Arsenal catchable? I mean, obviously we know they are statistically, but psychologically and, and what they offer now, are they, are they going to be difficult to catch? Let's put it that way. I think if we don't beat them in a few weeks' time, I think they'd win it. 
because he's just got himself, he's got himself in the formation. He's, and don't forget, Jesus is due to come back in the next couple of weeks. So they're, they're, and that's the one thing within Ketia, we felt they were a little bit short as a finisher. <laughs> so with Gabby Jesus coming back, uh, that'll add a bit more firepower there. So, you know, going forward, if we don't beat them in a few weeks' time, that puts them in the box seat. Absolutely. One other subject I want to bring you up, up with you before you move away from us, uh, and, and thanks again for, for being here tonight, is you, you were a director at City, so obviously you know the ins and outs of a football club far better than I do or any 99% of the people listening to this. What have you made of these accusations that of the Premier League have thrown at City? Obviously UEFA did before. Um, you know, what, What's your overall view of that? Not knowing the background and not knowing all the details, you know, it's a difficult. I mean, it, it, it's it's sad um, to see all these accusations. And but you know, the uh, the hierarchy, City, have offered a very robust answer to this. You know, we'll sort it out. There's not a problem. So they're quite relaxed. I'm, I'm just I hope that they've got all the evidence according necessary, because um, I'm, I'm just a bit concerned that they've thrown a hundred or a hundred allegations at us. Whether we can bat off the whole hundred, I don't quite understand. Um, it's interesting because they talk about um, Mancini and, and where he's being paid and all this. And when you've got a multinational company, you, you can do this and, and call consultants from anywhere. I mean, when I went to New York, um, and we were on, the Cosmos were owned by Warner Communication, I was paid by Warner Communication, not by the New York Cosmos. And when we did the deal, they said they said to it, well, I said I'm an accountant, I'm a solicitor. Which company do you want your money paid into? And in which currency do you want it paid in? So these multinational companies that do have uh, sort of accountants that cross, cross borders, <laughs> say it that way. So I don't really know in detail, but um, when you've got a multinational company, they can, they can have consultants wherever they like. That's a really interesting insight, that. But you, you must have dealt with, because uh, you're in the corporate world, you're in you know, the business world, and you've been a director at City. You must have come across Caldoun and, and um, uh, you know, Ferran Soriano and, and the, the powers that be that run the club. Have they always impressed you when you've talked to them? I love Caldoun's end-of-season video. I think it's a very, very professional analysis uh, strategy uh, on what's happened, what's going to happen. I think he's, he's a very professional man, very well educated. I've read a bit about him, you know, so he's, um, he, he's, he's, he leads the club uh, on the face of it very well. Is that the only contact you've really had then with him, just watching these videos? I thought you might have been more, you know, in the boardroom from time to time no. and stuff like that. That's the one, the one disappointment at the moment that... Uh, Everybody who is in the club at the moment think it only the club only started in two thousand and eight. <laughs> yeah, that, there is a bit of truth in that, I suppose. Um, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk to you about before before we um, we let you go is obviously City play Newcastle next week. And when I invited you on, by the way, I didn't this was just an accidental timing. But I thought it, it's it's inappropriate for me not to ask you about Newcastle. You're a Geordie yeah. lad, you know. What, what are these games like for you when, when City play Newcastle? Oh, when City play Newcastle, City is my team. When, when Newcastle plays Sunderland, that's where I've got a dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> when City plays Sunderland, City is my team. So when City play next, next Saturday, I mean, my, my brother and my pal, one of my pals are coming down for the game. Because um, obviously, and I've got tickets for them today to go to Wembley. Um, so so they, they come down, and he comes down every year. And he said, We come down every year, and we get beat three, four, five. He says, uh, But he still comes down because he thinks it's a fabulous stadium, fabulous occasion, and there's always a good game. The game up at St James's Park was one of the best this season, in my opinion. Um, yes. You know, and you saw Newcastle probably at their best that day. Um, do, you, do you feel that they're still serious contenders, not necessarily for the title, but for top four? Or do you think that the defeat to United in the League Cup is now going to damage yeah. them? I think I think the defeat uh, today, because now they just seem one or two weary legs in the team. You know, again, Bruno came off today, Longstaff came off. I think Eddie was trying to save them. I don't know. I'm not sure if they're in the FA Cup this week. Or they? They're out, aren't they? So they've got a week's rest. So what team he can put? Because I was surprised Joe Linton started because he came off with his hamstring. It was a one week, one game ago or two two games ago. Normally hamstrings don't last for seven days. If it's a hamstring, you know, it's a hamstring. And he's, he's just, 
I think he's, 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 on, he's on threadbare situations as far as the depth of the squad's concerned. And whether what team he can put out on Saturday is a different matter. But you know they're going to be strong at the back. You know, I mean, I know Shaw got a bit, bit of a banging today. Um, but again, a couple of days, he should be OK. Um, Dan Byrne, Sven Botman, you know, Kieran Trippier, you know, he captained our youth team when, when I was at City. And Jim Cassell was the academy manager. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a top, top quality player. So I just think there's a few of the team have got weary legs. Now, whether he can put out a strong enough team on Saturday, um, I think it depends on, like, you have Callum Wilson, so he may be think, thinking uh, to keep him for Saturday. And he looks, he took up Almiron, St. Maximum. So you can see what he's thinking about Saturday already. So they may, may start again because they weren't injured when they came off. So it'll be interesting to see what team he puts out. But certainly he's midfield with Bruno because Bruno went off with a he turned his ankle when he went into a tackle. I don't know if he showed you on slow motion on the, uh, on the television. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be okay again um, because he was off a while ago with that uh, ankle ligament damage. So it'll be interesting to see whether he's damaged it again or whether he's going to make Saturday. You think it's inevitable at Newcastle within the next year or two are going to be title proper title contenders because of the new ownership that they've got? Well, the big, the big problem, which I've always said to people, if I said to you, 15 years ago, the top 40 players in the world, which clubs would they go to? You say Man United, Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Inter Milan, AC Milan, Juventus, maybe Bayern Munich. There's nine. Now, if you say, well, the top 50 players go in, all of a sudden, you take the same nine. Now you've got Manchester City, you've got PSG, you've got some of the clubs in, in France, you know, so you've got that, that 50 can only be spread over so many clubs. Therefore, it's a question of the coaching. And again, the one thing which I like about our club is the fact they're recruiting. I'd love to sit in on their recruitment meetings to see the analysis and what they, what they, uh, how they come up with a selection of a player. What elements do they go? Do they go temperament, fitness levels, goal scoring, stats? You know, I'd love to see how that that, uh, that meeting goes before they choose who they want to, uh, to sign. And I remember when I was a director, the, the model was Bayern Munich. And Bayern Munich, what they had, and Uli Hoeneß was the chairman at the time, and obviously that was before he got done for tax evasion. Um, he used to say, we have, we go in, there's, there's, there's three people in the committee. Now, I guess it was him, the manager, and one other. He never said who they were, but I guess the first selection, he said, we'd make a list, say a top 10 list of our target players to bring in for the new season. He says, then we, we make that list. We take this list of 10 or so many to another committee of three, which he heads, and I'm assuming the next two are financial people, not the manager. And they put a, they put a value in each of one of those players, a value for that. Then the, 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 uh, the approach the top of the list, see if they can do a deal. Then if they can't do a deal, then they go down the list and down the list accordingly. And what he said, he says, you, can, you must always be prepared to say no if people try and um, overcharge or overcost their player um, before you make it. But they've got a great list of, and I assume that list is in conjunction with the manager based on what system he wants to play the following season. Because the manager has to be, the manager has to be involved in 90% of the, the discussions, but not in the last 10%. Because <laughs> the last 10% is only financial. Where does that, you didn't name Newcastle in this sort of new new uh, order, shall we say. Do you think they, they will be eventually? Yeah, but they're but, 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 fighting against Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester City, PSG. Again, so there's only so many, many World Cup play, world players, you know, so you've got to then look at, and, and again, you know, talking with uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Cassell from our academy manager when I was a director about recruitment. Recruitment then becomes so, so important. And not just recruitment at the first team level, recruitment at your academy level, because then you develop. I mean, Jim Cassell holds the record now uh, as an academy manager. 41 players played in the first team when he came through his, his academy management. We raised over £60 million with the transfers, transfer money from players that came through the academy. And he's had 28 of those 41 were internationals, even though one played for the Faroe Islands, but that's not another thing. But, you know, and that's, that's where you've got to, your recruitment is not just at the top level. Your recruitment always is at the academy level as well. 
And of course, Kieran Trippier played for Newcastle, who came through City's Academy and was captain of them in the uh, League Cup final. Uh, Dennis, it's been great to have you on. I really appreciate your time. So I'm going to let you go. I know you're a busy man and we'll carry on with the, with the podcast with the other lads. So um, speak to you again soon, Dennis. OK, well, I'll say to you, Andy and Steve, for me. I will. Yeah, well, cheers, Dennis. See you, guys. Thank you. See you later, mate. So, obviously, we carry on. Um, you, interesting stuff from Dennis. Um, before we go up to the Newcastle game, perhaps we'll, we'll go back to that in a bit because it's, it's obviously in the future. Um, but in terms of the inconsistencies, is there an answer to that, those inconsistencies? Let's start with Andy. I mean, is there a, you know, is, is, is it a serious inconsistency? Because in a different season, the number of points that City have acquired so far probably would see them top, wouldn't it? But Arsenal have been exceptional, pretty much. Well, I mean, looking at the, point, the, the table from last season, we're not so far away um, at this stage and we've had the World Cup. The difference isn't us, it's the others. And I think you look at the end of season points and you go back over the last decade and where, where there's been nearly every season, uh, barring one or two exceptions, a ding-dong battle between first and second, we're starting to see that change. And I think the whole sophistication behind teams' preparation and professionalism in, in monitoring the opposition, in how to counter the opposition, in setting up teams, I think it's just gone to another level. And you'd, you'd have to say that going into this week's Champions League ties, you'd expect the Premier League to be wiping the floor again, wouldn't you? But... Look who's, look who's the only one with a Catinelle's chance, really. And that's Little City with a terrible draw away in Leipzig. So I think that tends to suggest that the competition is getting more difficult in every single aspect of, uh, of football. And, and Tuesday night will be no, no exception, uh, as was the quarterfinal in the Carabao Cup. You know, you can even look at National League Wrexham and Notts County and the quality of football they are playing. And it's it's all around. You can see that Pep Guardiola and people like him have brought an immense energy to football across Europe. And we in the Premier League have the finance to be able to get the players, but it, it filters down into, I think, at least the quality of football into the other leagues, into uh, European leagues. And I think now the idea of dominance, with the, with the exception of one team who seem to have the European Champions League in their DNA still, who never like to get knocked over, they get up and they get back. And I think they're the only one who break the mould when it comes to the Champions League, at least, not in domestic football. I think, I think that's the reality. Hang on a minute. I, just... I thought you were talking about Real Madrid there, were you? Oh, of course I was. Yeah, of course I was. It, it, it's clear that um, it, it's changed out of all recognition. The the amount of money coming into football, the different, the new owners that keep popping up, the regulators can't keep up. They're trying to deal with us. They can't do that. Dennis is absolutely bang on right. By the way, put my business head on. Yeah, multinational companies do exactly what he said. They make ways to enable. In, in a very legitimate way for uh, monies to be transferred for services provided by people, whether he did four days a year or 40, it doesn't matter, whatever he was contracted to, if they decided to overpay him, there's nothing illegitimate about that and the courts will throw their rubbish out. So <clears throat> I think it's, it's fair to say that every competition now is difficult Um We've done extremely well so far this season, in my opinion, with a number of players that we committed to a long period of time away from the club during the World Cup. I think there was only Bayern Munich who had more players involved in that competition. And so, you know, reflecting on it, maybe this season's a bit strange because of that. But in the end, where are we? We're, we're, we're in the wing mirrors of Arsenal. And I'll tell you, I've said it on this podcast before, you do not want Manchester City in your wing mirrors. And as long as we're there and as long as we keep uh, in vision, I'm very optimistic that this season will end well. One of your guests yesterday, I think, said about April being important. I think if you look at the fixtures, 
you know, you could you could look at that as being a, a vital month. It's great. It's great that, you know, Arsenal are still involved in their European competition as well. And, of course, delighted to see that the other so-called contenders are also through their playoff into the Europa League and are delighted to be in the Europa League and happy to win the Moose Cup. Isn't it great? Absolutely. Um, if, I can't let it go, by the way, that you picked out Wrexham as being, uh, you know, an example of, of... Is that because they're Welsh? No, it just reminds, just reminds me of December 1998, you know, when Gerard sticking it in and... And that was the start of the beginning. Let's be honest. Not 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 Dickoff's goal. It was it was Wrexham away. <laughs> so I always have a fond uh, a fond. I know it's close to home, so you know it's uh, one day maybe again we might play the the mighty dragons. Yeah, absolutely. I've been there this season. Did some commentary for Oldham Athletic when they played them in the FA Cup. Really enjoyed my visit to the the racecourse ground, which has changed a lot. The whole bank behind the goal now is being redeveloped. Um, yeah. I remember that being full. I remember watching an England-Wales game there um, back in the day. Obviously, they don't, wouldn't play at Wrexham these days, but who knows in the future. In, in terms of, you know, City had a, a, a very emphatic victory at, at Bournemouth, let's, let's be honest. And um, all right. It wasn't that long ago that the draw happened at Nottingham Forest, but I would have I came away, um, you know, from that game ahead of my four and a half hour journey home after travelling three and a half thousand miles. It's really watching City, but actually thinking that was more like the old city. But then there's also that bit in the back of my mind thinking this was only Bournemouth, you know, a team that are almost certainly going to go down this season and defended atrociously. Um, I just wonder, Stephen, where you are in terms of confidence. Uh, you made that same long journey down to Bournemouth as well. Uh, you know, where you are in terms of your confidence for the for the remainder of the season. Did that game at Bournemouth teach us anything? It taught us that if we get the second goal quick enough, then things are a little bit easier for us, you know, rather than at Forest. I mean, at Forest last week, if you take the score line and the disappointment of your emotion out of it, performance for 99% was absolutely outstanding we you know we created chance after chance and they had one chance and it was just one of them days but it was one all weren't it and you know when Phil went through yesterday and put the third in I'm saying to my son if he'd have done that last week and missed that one then it would have been all right really wouldn't it you know we'd have accepted that so yeah yeah and I agree with Andy that you know, Arsenal, we're in the, you know, they keep looking out of these wing bearers. If they're City, and I think the other thing for them is, is that when, if they if they listen to TV, I don't know, you know, if they've got to buy a Sky Sports on on a Sunday afternoon, the, all the pundits keep saying, well, City are going to put a run together. And Arsenal have got to beware of that. So they're playing out of the skins and having a fantastic season. But people just keep saying, well, City are going to come, City are going to come. So really, at some stage in their mind, they know they can't make mistakes, but, but we're chasing them and we can't really make mistakes. I think Arsenal will probably have a good week this week. I think they'll beat Everton on Wednesday and unfortunately, they've got Bournemouth next Saturday. So I would say there's six points for them. So it makes it more important that we do beat Newcastle next Saturday morning early to, to keep the gap. What would it be back to five then if, if they win in midweek? So, I mean, it, sometimes I think I'd rather they get the game in hand out of the way. So if we're five points behind, we know that we're chasing five points. And as Dennis said before, Arsenal at home is going to be big. But they've got a good run of games. I've looked at the, the next six. So they've got a good run of six. Whereas we've got a couple of tricky... They're, they're all tricky, let's, let's face it, as we showed at Forest last week. But we've, we've got a bit of a run. But then Arsenal start that run of away games that could really determine what's going to happen. And then they've got, you know, they've not had this pressure of trying to win the league before. Now, the, the young players, they may play without fear and go on and confidence, you know, the confidence might see them through. But I'm not too worried about chasing them at this moment in time. I think last week was a disappointment that we'd got above them. And if we'd have won, we'd still be above them now until Wednesday. But we're not having a bad season, let's face it. You know, if you listen to the media, you'd think we were having a bit of a disaster this year, wouldn't you? And uh, it's not. 
And I, th I think there's a lot of disrespect shown to Leipzig this week. The first half performance was incredible against the team, one of the most formed teams in Europe at the moment. And second half, at some stage, they are gonna, they're not gonna sit back and think, well, we're just gonna let City dominate us. And they came and they came at us and came and came well. And they got a deserved draw in the end. And one all isn't such a bad result. And we've got to be careful when we play them at home as well. Are we all writing United off a bit too easily here? I mean, I know as a tribal city podcast, in theory, we should be saying, ah, United, well, they're not going to be a problem. But if we step back from it a little bit and we say, well, they just won a trophy, uh, again, we can ridicule them and say it's only the League Cup, but we enjoyed it when we won it. But what it does do, whether you win it or not, is that they've got momentum, they've got belief that, you know, they're on, they're actually the best form team, if I'm not mistaken, in the Premier League in something like the last... 10 games or something like that. Um, I wouldn't write that. They're only three points in theory. I mean, and it's all about games in hand, but in theory, they're only just behind. Um, and if it's all about City and Arsenal, uh, you could argue that United are just on the shoulder in third place, looking for the other two to sort of outpunch each other. Are, are they still in this title race? I'd probably say so. But, you know, like you say, you can't hide the, the figures. I think next week, weekend's a big weekend for them. Isn't it? Have they got Liverpool away next week? I've not looked at the fixtures, to be honest. I think, I think they've got Liverpool away. So, And I know Liverpool is not Liverpool last season and they look a bit poor at the moment, but you know it's a cup final, really, for them next week. If they're going to salvage something out of this season, then they've got to beat United. So that'll determine... I think they'll beat West Ham on Wednesday in the cup. And, uh, and then... If we can beat Newcastle, like I say, I think Arsenal will win the next two without without a doubt. And then United have got the pressure on to keep the run going against Liverpool. And no, I wouldn't I wouldn't count them out, but I don't like to think about them anyway. Well, you might not want to think about them, assuming that we beat Bristol City in midweek and they go through as you quite rightly assume that they will do. That takes us both into the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. If we don't draw each other in the quarters, there could be another Wembley derby coming up because a lot of the other big ones are out of the way. So in what's left of the season, another three months or so, there could be a FA Cup derby. Um, there could be nip and tuck with City and United in the title race. Um, it makes things very spicy, Andrew, doesn't it? We'll be playing him in the Champions League game. <laughs> just to get that one out of the that. way yeah alright yeah. but I said what I said before about the best respect I can give them is that they're in the Europa League and they've got another game every other week because that's better than them not having a game let's be honest we can't um, ignore the fact that it's visible that there's an improvement there's obviously as well a millimetre improvement in VAR since uh, Eric Ten Hag <laughs> came and of course uh, all sorts of conspiracy theories about dressing room mumblings between referees and so on um, let, let, let's say it's in the Premier League's interest that Manchester United are in the title race because Liverpool are definitely not I think I will end my point of view there Okay, let me ask let me ask you something else, Andy, because I don't think we've had you on the podcast since these Premier League accusations were made. And you've already touched it on it slightly in, in one of your previous answers. But um, you know, just to let anybody who's listening, you're a very successful um businessman. You know, you're you're at the top of your tree in your industry. And I know that you've studied, uh, you know, a, a properly i mean you know at sort of university level and everything all sorts of stuff to do with football and and, and business within <laughs> football so you you're you're an expert in your field without you know over um, egging it so you, you, you and i know you think about it a lot uh, what what do you think of the charges that have been made and i mean th this isn't going to if it was going to a court because that was that was what you hinted at in one of your previous answers maybe it would all be thrown out well, this isn't going to be a court. This is going to be a three-person committee behind closed doors. We don't hear what their deliberations are. We only see their end result. And I'm not sure what the legalities are, are of um, you know, complaining against whatever decision is made. Now, we had Colin Savage on here, who's a, you know, a, a bit of an expert on the finances a little bit. 
um, giving his view. And I spoke um, last week to uh, Mark Hendrick, who is uh, Sir Mark Hendrick, MP, about the white paper and the connotations of how the white paper may have come into this as well. I just wonder what your perspective is with your, your, your you know, intellectual and business head on of, of how this is going to pan out. Okay, so the Premier League is an organisation. I believe its shareholders are the clubs in the Premier League. And it cannot make the laws of the land. That's up to a little bronze-coloured building with a big bell in the tower at the top in London. That's where laws are made. So let's start there. So whatever the Premier League believe they can do amongst their, their rules, their code of conduct, their whatever contractual obligations they have to clubs, they may have within those rules powers which enable them to do certain things. That might be points deduction, it might be uh, relegation or uh, transfer bans, whatever it is, I don't know the detail. But certainly if they're acting any in any way which is crossing a white line called, uh, you know, against the law, I'm sure Manchester City will do everything within their power to align their King's Council uh, at very high hourly rates to make sure that the Premier League fall in line with the law. I'm certain of that. That that's will that will happen. And if there's anything which the glass house glass house uh, stone throwers are doing, which the, our Q, uh, KC know about, I'm sure that that will be brought to their attention long before any decision is taken over the outcome of a three person investigation. So I think it's fair to say that the Premier League, backed obviously by, in my opinion, uh, those who would like to see less competition in the Premier League, because that's what we are. I, I think they would like to see their revenues increase so that they can sell their clubs for more money. I don't know if any clubs are for sale, incidentally. I, I just make that sort of association. And I think that the fact that it happened in the week when the government were about to uh, publish a white paper, I, I listened to the podcast where you had the MP on. I think it was last week. Very interesting. It's aligned with my thinking. I think that was a deliberate act of circumventing an inevitable sanctioning on regulation on the Premier League that the owners of the Premier League, with the exception, the sole exception of Manchester City, do not want. So I think the club is making very consistent messages to the media, to the outside world, saying, bring it on. Whatever you've got, bring it on. We'll, we, we'll, we'll, we'll challenge you on your accusations in whatever media we need to. But I think what it will do, and this is my only concern, is create situations where player contracts going forward will have to have more caveats in them about what if. It might create one or two players' uncertainty about whether they join City or not, depending on how long the thing goes on for. Um, so I'm fairly relaxed because I don't believe that they could possibly live with the reputational damage that it would be if they were found out to have actually broken a hundred odd accusations so blatantly. I think that would be really, really problematic for a global organization, which is nearly 1 billion US dollars turnover. It's not a Mickey Mouse club. We're not just MCFC. It's a global football organization and a growing one. There's no way they can act this way without um, serious reputational damage. And I believe now that something like 30% of the club is owned by external investors from China and the United States. So they're not going to want their investment damaged by some historical misbehaviour. If they thought something was wrong, they would force the club into some sort of admission or some change of executive management. That's how things work in business. So that's my that's my business head perspective on it. I think we, we we're good, and if there was a, if there was something really that bad, they would they would have to um, maybe even in 
certain jurisdictions where we have football uh, clubs maybe even obliged to actually disclose that in certain countries. So I'm relaxed. Andy, do you, do you think... Right. Go, on, go on, Stephen. Oh, do, do you think when the investors invested in, in the group that this conversation will have taken place <laughs> during the Welcome to Manchester City meetings? I, I mean, it's, it's bizarre to even think that the question wouldn't have come up, isn't it, really, Steve? I think yeah. if you're putting that amount of money, due diligence is a key part of any business transaction when you take ownership or major share ownership in any organisation. And what City would have had to have done is they would have had to, within that due diligence process, made a, an accommodation for if there had been an error in what they would have not disclosed during the due diligence process, which would be extremely punitive financially. And you might say, well, it's all about oil money, it doesn't matter a billion here, a billion there. We're going down with a billion in the bank and all that. But actually, it's more than that. It's the actual damage to not just uh, the football club, but let's be honest, we've got here people who are putting their country in Abu Dhabi forward. It's, it's not a secret that they wanted to place Abu Dhabi in, in a good light by doing what they've done around Manchester and around the around the football scene, as, it, as are other Gulf nations. It's not just one. There are several. Um, and I think that the damage would be, it would be too much. You know, there's quite, there's quite clearly a desire for, you know, for things to be right. And I don't believe that they would, if caught out, hide away from, from saying, okay, fair enough. We take it on the chin. There were some things that were wrong. We should have done things better. We'll pay our dues, take our hit. And UEFA had a go at that. And in the end, that didn't really end up with anything other than a little bit of a smack on the wrist for technical reasons. So I'm not I'm not blind to the idea that there might be some wrongdoings, but I can't believe that the the owners of the club and the executive of the club would would continue with a facade as is being um, projected by these ongoing accusations. It's just unthinkable. If you believe, as as most City fans, including me, believe that there is a red, red cartel and that it's all been aimed at sort of stopping City, um, it failed with UEFA, Premier League are doing it now. This might not be exactly the same and we can't do this subject justice in what's left of the podcast and actually we don't know enough facts about it. But one story that I noticed in the last couple of days is FIFA now suggesting that the CFG, the group of clubs that City own all over the world, because there's going to be a new from 2025 World Club Cup that will bring in clubs from all over the place, that then there becomes suddenly a conflict of interest or you know, uh, whilst City are not likely to play New York City or Mumbai City or Melbourne City in any of the competitions that exist at the moment, if FIFA bring in this new competition, they might. It might be Melbourne City that is put forward as the Australian example. Is that going to be a problem, do you think, for for our owners? Or just, I mean, I, the, you talk about it being a big company, Andy, and a big turnover. They must have thought this through as well. Does that mean City are going to fight against the World Club Cup or how's that going to pan out? I've not thought about it in those uh, along those lines, Ian. I mean, I, now I'm starting to think even wider about what about the conflict of interest between uh, sponsors? You know, Emirates, how many, how many fingers have they got in pies? You know, you start to ask the question. Suddenly you go into all kinds of revenue stream questions around, you know, where where is this actually being played by some, you know, uh, businessmen and country owners on some end game and it's football or sport generally. You know, golf's got it now and I'm sure that other sports are, are going to feel the same, that in the end the, reg the regulators have to you know, really show their power here. And FIFA, I mean, let's be honest, I was fortunate enough to spend time at Qatar and then I realised what FIFA's about more than anything else. They put on a show, but they do it for dough. <laughs> That's what they do. And and so anything which is going to detract from FIFA being an opportunity for FIFA to make money 
I, I don't think they're gonna. They, they're not gonna, you know, shoot the the hand that feeds them. Well, we're nearly at the end of the podcast, Stephen. Uh, obviously, City's next two games are away at Bristol City. Um, I'm sure, like me, you've been to Bristol City in the past, although they haven't been. In a, I can't believe that a city like Bristol actually isn't. It doesn't have a club in the top flight. I mean, after Manchester, Birmingham, London, I would have thought Bristol. I don't know. I don't have the facts, and somebody will say, "Oh no, it's somebody else." But it feels like that's the the next biggest city, uh, and yet they don't have any team in top flight and here we are playing them but that's the next game Bristol City on Tuesday and then of course the visit of Newcastle United um, what's your instinct of going forward now I mean how important is the FA Cup for example every, I think every game now I think every game of all the seasons is uh, important if the standard we're at now it's not like it used to be where we, you know we used to prioritise games didn't we but I think now, and an interesting fact, uh, you know, I've mentioned to you before, I watch the Football League highlights, so I record it every week and then flick through it and what have you. And it mentioned today, Bristol City still not lost in 2023. So, you know, it, again, but I, I think we have a manager that res- shows respect to every competition we play in. So, yeah, I mean, said that, and I don't want to be negative, but when City played Southampton, having got through two previous rounds in that competition that were took a big effort to get through. Yeah. It did yeah. feel to me as if that team maybe should have been capable of doing better that day, but it did feel as if the Southampton game wasn't taken as seriously. And I just worry a little bit that with the Newcastle game coming up, that whether Pep doesn't take the Bristol City game as seriously, especially given the information you've just uh, put in front of us. Well, no, if you look, if, if we start the game and we know what it is a weaker team, but when he names that team, he doesn't let you know. I'm going to be very critical here. He, he doesn't know that Sergio Gomez is going to play as badly as he does and lays the first goal on for them. And Cancelo had probably one of his worst games of his city career. You know, like then then players go out there because they can win it, but then they don't. Play on the night. I mean, our, our backup goalkeeper Ortega has been absolutely fantastic this season, but he, he just had a little bit of a nightmare for the second goal, and we couldn't get well. We couldn't get one goal, never mind two. But it knocked the stuffing out of us a bit. So I think he he does pick the team, saying you can go out and win this game. You know, it's, it's a little bit like remember the semi final at Wembley and we're three 0 down at half time to Liverpool, and he didn't make any substitutions. You know, and I've said to my sons, why are we not making any subs? Why are we not making any subs? And we made them quite late. But I think he's what he's a, he's a guy who says, I've picked you to go and win that game. And when they come in at 3-0 down in that semi-final, he says, nope, I still think you can turn that game around. And you, you, you know he's a little bit stubborn sometimes with his substitutions anyway. But because he's got belief in them, he, he's, he's probably pointing the finger at them saying, you shouldn't be 2-0 down to Southampton at half-time. You shouldn't be 3-0 down to Liverpool at half-time. So I think he does show good respect. And yes, you know, we're having a little bit think about the team. I wouldn't like to say, but we've not got many centre-halves to play anyway, have we? Let's face it, two of them are injured. So, true, uh, true enough. I think Cameron Phillips will play. He's not set the world on fire for us, has he? But... He's probably had about 15 minutes or something like that without being injured. So he'll play in midfield, I would have thought, because Rodri needs a rest. I think I think we'll do all right. I think we'll do all right. Well, with obviously great thanks to Dennis Stewart, who was with us for the uh, the first half of the podcast today. And thanks to Howard Solicitors, who are in Stockport, Ashton and Cheshire, and specialise, among other things, in family law. So if you're going through a separation or you're having problems with access to your children or social services, they can help you. 01618729999. Email law at howardsolicitors.com or look on their website, howardsolicitors.com, for any help. Uh, big thanks to Stephen and Andy, as always, an invaluable insight into the business side of things, which I can't possibly really contribute to. Um Oh, don't forget to look at the, the YouTube videos that I put up there because the Mark Hendrick interview, Sir Mark Hendrick MP, and the interview with Colin Savage, and of course, 
every match day interview is up on the YouTube channel, Ian Cheeseman, Forever Blue. Um, this week it's Bristol City. I, of course, will be down at Ashton Gate when I do the games too for Sony TV in India. So hopefully I'll still be able to put together a meaningful uh, vlog. Uh, and next Saturday, um, I've been invited uh, into a one of these platinum boxes um, as, a, as a guest of a, a gentleman who's a big Colin Bell fan who would have been celebrating his 77th birthday today. Um, and Colin was somebody that I obviously got very close to when I wrote his autobiography, Reluctant Hero. So we remember Colin and I know that the, the guy's invited me into his box next week is a big Colin Bell fan, hence the reason for inviting me to go along there. And I may have some access a little bit behind the scenes to the so-called leaders of the club. I don't know who that will be, whether that's Soriano or whatever, whether I'll be able to film that type of thing. Remains to be seen if I can, I will. If not, I'll, at least I'll tell you about it on the podcast next week a little bit. So um, thanks very much to everybody um, for, for listening, for uh, subscribing, which of course is free. We'll do another podcast, I don't know if we'll record it. Saturday night or Sunday next week. But in the meantime, have a great week. If you're going down to Bristol City, come in and say hello. If you see me, contribute to the vlog. And um, you won't see me probably at Newcastle because I'll be eating posh food with, you know, expensive knives and forks and stuff. But I'll still be there, still be doing what I do uh, and still watching City because if there's only one thing you remember from this uh, podcast, remember this. It's great to be a blue. Mm -hmm.